This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And I'm Tamara Fernando, an assistant professor in history at Stony Brook University. And with us today is Professor Lala Khalili, Al-Qasimi Professor of Gulf Studies at the University of Exeter. Welcome, Lala, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you, Ahmed and Tamara. I'm so excited to be here. We are glad to have you on the podcast. Um, Today, we are celebrating the launch of a new book, uh, Corporal Life of Seafaring, published by Mac Books in 2023. First, before delving into the book, we would like to learn about the author. So if you can say a few words about yourself, uh, that is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors or books. Um, great. Uh, because I'm an old lady, obviously this story, this bit of the story may take a little bit of time, but um, I grew up in Iran and um, and I lived in Iran until I was 17. Um, I left the country in 1985 because my parents had been politically active and because of their political activity, I wasn't 100% certain I would be accepted at the university there. And I ended up in the United States um, where uh, in Texas, uh, where I did an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering with um, with a um, specialization in biomedical engineering. Um, like a good Middle Eastern girl, I was going to become either a doctora or a mohandasa, either a doctor or an engineer. I worked for a few years as a management consultant and um, even though I got accepted to a medical program, I decided that I really didn't want to do that. And so I ended up um, doing a professional MA at SIPA, the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. And while doing that professional MA, 
I was really um, struck by some of the things that I was reading. Um, I think the, the epiphany, the moment of epiphany for me was when I realized based on reading um, uh, John Locke's uh, second treatise, um, that in fact, the entirety of the edifice of human rights in uh, in, in uh, sort of Anglophone, in the Anglophone tradition was based on private property and that really rocked my world. And so I decided to go on and do a PhD. I did a PhD in political science. Um, I was very lucky to have on my committee and as my, really as the person who read everything and argued with me about things, um, Chuck Tilley, the, the great historical sociologist. Um, uh, and then I did my PhD, ended up in the UK and I made my way circuitously from SOAS um, through uh, Queen Mary University of London um, to my current post at Exeter. Uh, thank you for that uh, overview of your trajectory. Um, in connection to that, uh, your recent book, uh, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published by Verso in 2020, uh, explores the pivotal role of maritime infrastructures in facilitating the movement of technologies, capital, people, and cargo. Can you briefly introduce the listeners uh, to Sinews of War and its interventions and how that in turn relates to your latest book, Corporal Life of Seafaring? How do you situate uh, your recent work uh, within the literature on the Indian Ocean world? Um, what a great question. Okay, so let me start with Sinews. Sinews started when I... Um, really became interested in the idea of um, working or writing about uh, the very many ports of um, the Arabian Peninsula. What really struck me was that the writings about the ports could be divided into two categories of writing, either the really amazing historical accounts of the ports, which actually took the sort of the social and political relations in which those ports were situated or which they reproduced um, and did really amazing things with them. And, and of course, in that category, I would include um, the works of really amazing Indian Ocean historians. And then the second category of works were those that were much more recent, and they were what I would call a kind of a managerial or technical, uh, technocratic or technical accounting for of those ports. Um, and what that meant was that essentially they were really interested in things like uh, making throughput more efficient or understanding the sort of the best setting for a port, essentially the kind of things that people involved in policy like to use. And I wanted something that fell in between those, um, that on the one hand, it acknowledged the modern ports, the ports that were operating um, uh, in, in, in the present time, but drawing from the kinds of methods that Indian Ocean historians had drawn from. So um, I kind of wanted to locate myself in, in that space. But I was also interested in ports, not necessarily as just the point of launching or receiving cargo, but as political spaces um, embedded in urban relations, embedded in political 
relations embedded in a series of human sets of activities, whether by experts or engineers or um, uh, or the political elite or the bourgeoisie, or by the workers that have made these ports um, and made possible the work of shipping in them. Um, and I really was interested in doing all of this. And so I was inspired by quite a number of different people and an, a, a range of different works. Um, I would say that uh, immediately some of the things that were extraordinarily important to me were the works of Johann Matthew um, on illicit trade at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Um, the work of uh, Fahad Bishara, uh, who also very wonderfully and generously led the uh, read the manuscript and caught some embarrassing errors in there um, on, on law in the Western Indian Ocean, but also the works of um, Indian Ocean uh, historians that don't necessarily uh, work on the Gulf itself. So, for example, Gopal Balakrishnan's work on um, on uh, the uh, uh, Lascars in the Western Indian, well, in the whole of the Indian Ocean. Um, and I was also, in addition to all of that, interested in um, the work that other kinds of maritime historians had done. So Marcus Redeker's work or a number of different Atlantic historians um, were quite important important to me because they were because they were essentially touching on stuff that I had been really interested in. In addition to that, I was very lucky to have come uh, to have written my book, to have done the research for my book um, a few years uh, after uh, Deb Cowan's extraordinary book, The the um, the Deadly Life of Logistics, had come up, um, had been published. And so that's what I really wanted to look at, one, one, what I really wanted to um, uh, follow or emulate in some ways, um, to, to understand how the specific context of the Arabian Peninsula produced all of these different relations, the root the infrastructure of the ports, the labor, the expertise, and ultimately the role of these ports in war. Now, a lot of the research that I did for that book, which is an academic book, but one that also appeals to a broader intellectual readership. Um, it is, you know, it's published by a trade publisher, which is nevertheless a trade publisher that prides itself in public, you know, Verso prides itself in publishing for a politically committed lefty readership. Um, and so some a lot of the research that I did for that, including ethnographic work aboard container ships, loads of archival research in archives in multiple continents, loads of interviews with um, with workers, experts, um, capitalists, bankers, uh, recruiters, everywhere from Hong Kong and Singapore to the Philippines and India to the Gulf and, um, uh, and and various countries of Europe uh, and North America, which had a role in shipping. And the material that I, can, I collected there is in the book, um, you know, in, in varying degrees, to varying degrees. But some of the material that I collected actually never made it into the book because the book um, wants to give a historical account. And so I had a whole bunch of ethnography, particularly on board the ship, which really was quite important to me and I didn't want to lose it. And so that ethnography turns out, turns um, into, has turned into the book that is hopefully coming out before the end of the year, The Corporeal Life of Seafaring. 
that ethnographic work is essentially about the experience, the embodied experience of labor aboard ships, but also what that embodied experience of labor might mean, not only in terms of an individuated experience, which I am also interested in, how does one's vision, how does one's walking, how does one's um, uh, state of one's soul, uh, you know, the, your, one's happiness or, or, or sadness affected by seafaring, but also the, the book is very interested in what does it mean to be part of a collective, um, and that collective is not only of seafarers, but also of people crossing seas. Um, there is one of the chapters in the book which is interested in migrants that try to traverse um, the Mediterranean and who are often pushed back by the states or various kinds of security organizations and the ways in which the work of solidarity by the seafarers requires stepping in to try to rescue these seafarers, uh, these um, uh, you know, maritime migrants. And so the book, in a way, is a is is a um, reflection on on those moments. Thank you, Lale. I I think um, listening to you, I was reminded of a line in that book in the introduction where you say, "This is an untidy book. It's curious about everything and hungry to tell stories." Um, and I think you did such a beautiful job of telling us all the different kinds of stories one could tell by looking at a port or shipping. Thank you, Tamara. I have a question specifically on literary form, mm. because we know this new book is an essay. It has your personal photographs. It's almost closer to a meditation, I take it, than a quote-unquote scholarly book, whatever we think that means. Can you say a little bit um, for us about yeah, genre and format with the new work? Oh, what a, what a great question. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, it is an S. It is a very personal essay, and I do take um, uh, I do take a kind of a um, uh, indulgences. I indulge some of some of the elements of literary thinking in writing the essay. the The book is divided into different chapters that are named after the different parts of the body, so um, uh, on legs or eyes or the heart or the soul, uh, you know, etc. And so, uh, and hands, obviously. Uh, so, in a way, it tries to use these various elements of an embodied life um, to think through what it is like to work today aboard a ship. In terms of genre, what the um, what the essay does is that it's in a way um, try it the, the book tries to draw in readers that may not be particularly interested in shipping um, in order to get us to think about what work might mean um, and also to think about what the debates are, again, in a, non in a very non-academic way around uh, the question of organization, the question of belonging and the question of collectivity. Um, I consider all of these things to be very embodied things. Um, so, um, but on the other hand, what it, what I also found really interesting, and this was one of the things that didn't quite, I couldn't quite include in sinews, was that there seems to be both continuities and ruptures in the ways in which literary and scholarly texts talk about the body at sea. Um, and 
What I wanted to do was to bring in as much of the literary texts into this essay as I could, because I think there's a, I've always said this, there's a particular truth to the to the work of literature, poetry, um, novels, even pulp fiction, that uh, scholarly work cannot get to because of the edifice of scholarship itself, the, the ways in which it requires certain kinds of uh, substantiation through evidence that may not necessarily fit very well with sort of subjective ways of thinking um, or subjective ways of experiencing um, work. Um, on the other hand, I think in some ways I also followed the work of a lot of humanities in, in taking those literary texts seriously and in trying to write, as I said, for an audience that might be familiar with, for example, Moby Dick or with audiences that may be um, familiar with uh, the poetry of Cavadias, a, um, a Greek poet uh, who was also a seafarer, or with Pulp Fiction that was published in the 1950s and 60s about uh, American tanker men and their, you know, their their boozy uh, sort of circuits of travel through uh, the 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 new oil ports that I had written about in Sinews. Um, uh, really important to this writing, for example, is uh, the work of the communist Jamaican American writer and poet Claude Mackay. He's got two novels, one post. Uh, about Marseille, um, which I couldn't include in uh, sinews because because they happen in Marseille, not not the Arabian Peninsula, but which I felt spoke a truth to the to the fact of seafaring and what um, that means um, for for the seafarers themselves. And so uh, it is a genre of writing that is extremely eclectic in the sources on which um, it draws, from which it draws. Um, and it is very uh, cheeky in in the um, in, in the ways in which it sort of just goes goes on ahead and uh, takes liberties with uh, takes liberties with the genre, takes liberties with the scholarship, takes liberties with the actual ethnographic research by trying to put it into uh, uh, these mini essays uh, structured around the body and the soul and the heart and the brain and the thinking. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense. And I'm so seduced by the idea that we can structure a book in this way. But Lele, I want to ask how for a scholar who is interested, or for those of us who are interested in big systems, like capitalism, if we want to use that as an example, how does the individual stand relative to an attempt to also break down, as you do both in sinews, but also clearly in this new book? Um, how does the individual stand relative to the system? And how might personal narrative be a distinct kind of archive? Wow, what a fantastic question. So interestingly, this has been the sort of the methodological um, question that I have grappled with ever since my PhD and my first book, which is based on the PhD. So my first book is called um, Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration. And it is based on ethnographic and oral history research in um, the Palestinian refugee camp of uh, Burj al-Barajne in southern Beirut. Um, I originally went to the camp 
in order to uh, with the project to research forms of resistance and forms of coping the particularly dire circumstances that the the refugee Palestinians lived in 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 the Mukhayyam in the in the um, refugee camp. And as I was there, it became clear to me that there were particular ways of thinking about and remembering the past, which was hugely significant in uh, the modes of mobilization um, that Palestinians chose. And so the argument that I make in that book is that different that that in fact forms of commemoration of the past, um, of the revolutionary past, of or of the past of the Nakba, the Palestinian expulsion from um, from Palestine from their homes in 1948, and the Nakba, the subsequent uh, defeat in 1967, which created yet more refugees um, and brought West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, as well as Golan and Sinai, under Israeli occupation. And so what I'm looking at in that book is how there is a shift in the genre of commemoration from uh, from from commemorating the past as heroic and as a as as a um, sort of uh, story of um, epic battles uh, for liberty and liberation, uh, which happens in the context of third worldist movements of the 1960s and 70s. And there's a shift from that to a narrative of suffering and trauma, which emerges with the ascendancy of human rights um, discourses um, and the end of the Cold War and, in, and, and the taming or domestication of the of the liberationist third worldist movements um from that moment so, so i was very influenced by the writings of feminist oral historians in particularly in particular rosemary sire in that book and of course what the feminist um oral historians um are talking about is um is the ways in which speaking about women gender uh and the feminist subject in the context of very large scale systemic transformations um, in in the case of Palestinians, uh, settler colonialism and their expulsion from Palestine, how that how we can use the personal narratives of the people that we speak to in order to understand these large scale systemic transformations. So that essentially was was my project in that book and in the subsequent book about counterinsurgency and then in sinews. And in each of those, um, essentially, I have been trying to not lose sight of uh, the the persons, the human um, uh, subjects of history. at the same time as acknowledging that the human subjects of history are not acting as atomized agents, but rather they're operating within the larger context of a set of um, huge systemic changes, huge sets of social processes, that that this that the sets of processes are relational, that they are mutually constitutive, um, that they are mutually transformative. Um, In fact, you know, I think, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, men make their history, but they don't make it as they please. So that famous uh, line is essentially what I have tried to um, 
in some ways constantly keep in front of my mind methodologically when I'm thinking about what I'm writing, because I think it is really important to constantly and iteratively go back between those large scale systemic changes and at the same time acknowledge the humans, their extraordinary triumphs, their extraordinary suffering, their extraordinary battles and struggles in in constituting those larger systems. Um, And so I think that as I said, this has been something that I've grappled with in 20 something years of uh, scholarship. And regardless of what sort of project I've worked on, it is in its most intimate form in the book that is going to be published by the end of the year, in part because I am focusing on body parts. It becomes, it goes even beyond the, the human subject and gets down to the, to, to the extremely sort of textured sense of one's senses relationship with the world uh but in a sense i am still deeply concerned with that um as i said the back and forth between the micro and the macro the the systemic and the individual the intimate um and the world historical this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Very beautifully put. And uh, I was wondering and checking again, did you get a PhD in politics or anthropology? (laughs) How does she get along with her colleagues? (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes, Um, I'm ashamed to say I got a degree in political science. Uh, So my degree is from the political science department uh, at Columbia University. I think I was probably in the last cohort of PhD students who was doing kind of, uh, you know, comparative international politics, not not political theory, who um, was doing qualitative research. And ever since then, you know, large N type uh, things, essentially um uh or end up being the sort the sort of the, the primary way in which people are uh, in that department are now doing research which is fine i mean that's their world i get in, i have gotten introduced as an anthropologist in my first book as a historian in my second book and as a geographer in my sinews and so in a way i'm quite happy not to have a disciplinary home uh, and, and in fact, what I have found really interesting was both my SOAS job and Queen Mary job were in politics departments. And now that I'm in Exeter and, and I'm actually in a, a uh, Arab and Islamic Institute, therefore a Middle East Studies department, I'm so excited about, for example, teaching classes, which is going to unashamedly um, and unapologetically use scholarly texts alongside, I don't know, short stories or poetry. So um, that that kind of a disciplinary homelessness is actually something I aspire to and I'm quite happy and proud of. Yes, we need more uh this kind of policy <laughs> and you're so <laughs> you. lucky to have you uh, because i know of many you know political scientists who are struggling with these questions and um yeah 
So it's I mean, I mean, there are there are lots of really great Middle East political scientists who do really excellent work now, and I think that there are institutions that are being built in order to support them. Um, the, the the kind of qualitative work that is emerging, whether the institutions that are arriving, you know, that are rising around Arab Studies Journal or POMEPS, uh, there there is space being created for people who want to work on politics, but without the uh, encumbrances of, uh, you know, a U.S. style political science, which um, only sees validity in large N or, you know, like, and God knows experimental type politics. So I do think there are spaces being carved out, but it is an uphill battle um, if we are, you know, to mix metaphors. Yes. And continuing with the uh, the line of questioning that we have uh, about the book. So the book also engages with adversities such as loneliness, loss, violence, stolen wages, and exploitative ship owners. Can you share some uh, experiences and examples uh, of these stories that highlight these challenges faced by seafarers? Yes. So, um, one of the stories that I include um, in the book uh, comes from an archive that at the time that I went into it had not yet been catalogued, which is the archive of the Mission to Seafarers. Uh, the Mission to Seafarers is an Anglican organization, um, so essentially a missionary organization that was set up to serve seafarers. And in 2000, it reincorporated essentially as a charity in order to provide counseling and other kinds of individuated services to seafarers that arrive into ports. But they have this incredibly rich archive of stuff. And some of that archive is from the reports that their um, chaplains have written from places like Bahrain and Dubai and um, other, you know, I think, um, Aden, uh, Aden, and in a couple other places, uh, including loads of other ports outside of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and their archives, I went through their reports, and there were these extraordinary reports, for example, about the war of uh, the tanker wars between uh, Iran and Iraq during the wars in 80 to 88. Um, and, and the tanker wars happened in the latter four years of the Iran-Iraq war, and um, it essentially entailed Iran and Iraq lobbing missiles or, um, or uh, sort of mining the shipping routes of tankers lifting oil from their enemies' oil ports. And what everybody talks about when they talk about this, uh, the, the tanker wars, in fact, if you go and look it up in any sort of uh, medium, including Wikipedia, but also U.S., because U.S. ends up becoming a, par a party to this by flagging Kuwaiti uh, ships, what, what you find is a very comprehensive list of all the ships that are hit. But what you find in the reports from the missions are incredibly detailed, heartrending um, and gruesome accounts of what happens to the seafarers, often Indians, Filipinos, or from other parts of the global south, who were on some of these ships, who were being blown out of the water, who were being um, uh, injured, who were being maimed, uh, who were terrified of being, of of doing their work, uh, but which they had to because you because they had to make a living. And so and and you really once you have signed up a contract, you really can't um, get out of that contract. And so uh, the archives contain some of this. But my own also experience was that when I was on on board the container ships that I was on, 
there were instances where you you know you sit down and talk to the seafarers and many of the filipino seafarers who were on nine month contracts on board the ship so they're there for nine months continuously before they can take a month or so off to go and visit their families at home uh you know we're talking about loneliness they were talking about being very depressed um and the statistics show that of all of the different jobs that are out there um the uh seafarers have the second highest suicide rates um, of any others. Um, their sea madness, uh, you know, where people uh, from being at sea for a very long time uh, end up sort of um, uh, getting forms of uh, mental illness or mental incapacity, and many actually throw themselves overboard or find other ways of hurting themselves. And so, and then there's, of course, the question of wage theft um, and seafarer abandonment, which is where a ship is abandoned by its owner. The owner declares bankruptcy refuses to pay the wages of the seafarers who say for example have worked on board the ship for six to nine months and then those guys have just worked essentially for nothing for six to nine months they are on board a ship somewhere abandoned without fuel and um they're left to fester. And if they leave the ship, they lose their claim and their right to the wages that are unpaid. And so many are forced to stay on board the ship. There's no fuel. Therefore, there's no electricity. Therefore, there's no clean water. Therefore, the, and, and they're running out of food. And again, the, the reports, um, not only of the mission to seafarers, but of the International Labor Organization that maintains a database on this called the Abandoned Seafarers Database, is full of these kinds of ships. And one of the things that I point to is that despite the fact that um, the, the vast majority of the abandoned seafarers seem to be coming from uh, India or Sri Lanka or African countries. Now, India happens to be third or third or fourth um, sort of uh, provider of seafarers in the world in terms of numbers. But African countries are nowhere in the top 10 list of providers of seafarers, and yet they African seafarers tend to be um, kind of disproportionately represented among these uh, on these abandoned ships, which essentially drives you to think that these this abandonment, this kind, this, these forms of violence, are essentially a kind of an embodiment of the global color line that also runs through seafaring. Really fascinating. Can we ask, given these examples of oppression, wage theft, death, and abandonment? Could you provide for our listeners some moments of joy and solidarity, which I know the book also covers, that you perhaps observed during your research or experiences on cargo ships? Um, I mean, the moments of joy are often um, uh, that they, they often emerge through the social interactions on board the ship. So, for example, um, on the first container ship that I went on, um, the Filipino seafarers on board the ship who uh, the, the officers were from Croatia, the crew members uh, were from the Philippines, plus a few from Kerala. Um, but the Filipino seafarers often include a provision, include a clause in their contracts um, that any ship that they have to go on has to have a karaoke machine. And so but one of the wonderful things that happens is every so often they have a social evening in which they sit around and they sing karaoke. And, and it's a um, it's 
it's uh, I was invited to a couple of days and it's of course joyful and it's beautiful and it is a moment of sociality that is lovely but there are other moments of solidarity which are not necessarily joyful so in um, moments of abandonment for example if the abandonment happens in places where the International Transport Workers Federation or some sort of a seafarers union or some form of dockers union has a presence um, so not the Gulf where um, uh, these unions uh, or certainly not the United Arab Emirates where these unions are not allowed um, but if they are if they are allowed then you often find that the ITF or the seafarers or dockers unions come in to try to rescue these seafarers one example that I haven't included in the book but which um, uh, you can find um, elsewhere is that when the Saudi war Saudi um, Emirati war on Yemen began um, there was a ship um, of Russian uh, seafarers abandoned um, on uh, the coast of Yemen uh, and they couldn't leave. And uh, the uh, Yemeni Seafarers Union, which has which is a very large um, and very powerful union, actually got together and funded the plane fare home for those Russian seafarers. I also include stories about seafarers rescuing migrants um, who are trying to cross the um trying to cross the Mediterranean in unsafe dinghies or unsafe boats um, and, and the ways in which they often do so at the risk of uh, not being allowed to dock, um, at the risk of being forced to extend their contracts at work. Um, and yet there is a kind of an ethics of rescue at sea, which which you see um, carrying on. And I think that that's, um, you know, it's something that is really important to hold on to when one hears about the absolute worst um, of, of these circumstances. Thank you for sharing that. Um, in listening to you, one would visualize or try to visualize uh, the scenes. And thankfully, you've provided uh, your own photographs throughout the book. Can you discuss the significance of including them? Uh, how does the visual contradict or complement mm -hmm. or enhances the narrative you are presenting? That's a really great question. So one of the things about the pictures that I think is really important is because I did not get the consent of the seafarers, none of the pictures actually include any faces or any recognizable faces. And so what they are essentially is that they they try to illustrate the context and the space of work. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm really uh, pleased that uh, when you asked me to talk about the photos, the first word that you used was contradiction, because in fact, the, the content of the image in some senses contradicts the remit of the book, which is to talk about the body. And, and in fact, the photographs mostly talk about the context rather than the body. Um, those pictures I took, uh, as I said, in those two major um, uh, ship trips that I took on two container ships uh, going from uh, Malta to Jabal Ali, both of them, one in 2015 and one in 2016. And those are pictures that I took from every stage of the travels and, and I've included them and they're of being aboard the ship of um, sort of the work um, of the engine room. Uh, the, the sort of arriving into port and leaving port um, of the nighttime sky, uh, which, by the way, is the most extraordinary experience uh, is, is when you're 
in a sea where there's no uh, light pollution and you look up and you can see every single star in the world, it makes you feel how incredibly small and insignificant one can be. Uh, it's extraordinary. And so I tried to include a lot of these photos. And in fact, I wasn't expecting any of these photos to appear in the book. But somehow, uh, my lovely editor at Mac Books really wanted to include them. And so um, they are, uh, the, the, the photos are going to illustrate essentially the context as I'm talking about the different body parts. Um, they they complement in that way, uh, the, the actual text. Um, they, they are very grounded in this particular moment, whereas the text also roams uh, across a very um, long uh, timeline, a long durée, um, rather than uh, just just this particular ethnographic moment that I managed to capture for you know an ephemeral moment with my cameras. Lale, thank you. We will try to bring some of the big ideas and themes to um, some kind of conclusion as we wrap up. So. Ahmed and I were both very inspired when you talked about disciplinary homelessness. And in concluding, we tend to ask broader questions. So we have a question for you. If we want to encourage a kind of productive ill-disciplinarity, how might you envision students in the field of Indian Ocean, I don't know, history, society, whatever we want to call it, be trained? How would we guarantee the multiple kinds of fluencies and skills that you demonstrate across your books? So to conduct an ethnography, but also to read the Admiralty archives, to engage with theory on racial capitalism. Maybe one might even think of multiple language training. Um, so how do you envision um, sort of scholarly training for new students in the field? That's a really interesting question. I think um, in part, I could take the liberties that I did because I am a little bit further along in the field. And so I don't have the necessary, I don't have the um, structural constraints um, that many uh, earlier career scholars um, or students um I, ha I have um, on, for example, on their research. So uh, disciplines really do protect and police their boundaries. And so the, despite a huge amount of lip service paid to transdisciplinarity, uh, uh, folks, PhD students are expected to actually adhere to their whatever discipline it is within which they're working. Um, so that ends up being a constraint. Um, having a book or a series of articles makes your makes one's job search much uh, easier, but that also requires funding in order for one to to go on ahead and do research in archives or um, ethnographic research, and that again is a little bit difficult. Um, one you know you have to have that funding. So there are quite a lot of uh, structural constraints on the kind of training that uh, can be provided. But I think one of the most important is that at least one or two languages of the region are necessary in order for that kind of work to be done. I do think that whether one chooses to do ethnography or historical research or indeed literary works, and there are some really extraordinary people who do work on um, literary works in the Indian Ocean and the ways that those literary works actually reflect a particular set of social and historical concerns. Um, 
it, those, that kind of training uh, it actually can be useful in, in, in reaching out to, in traversing disciplinary boundaries. So sometimes being grounded in one's own discipline can actually open a window in ways that one doesn't expect to other disciplines. I think that that, um, as I said, I, I do think that the, the constraints that um, being an early career researcher in a very neoliberal moment has to be taken into account. But ideally, also speaking, even if one is grounded in a discipline, always holding in the one's the back of one's mind that there are, you know, there are other fish in the sea, so to speak, um, can can be quite liberating. It can be quite um, useful. Uh, maintaining a constant intellectual curiosity about everything, being a little bit of a magpie and hoovering up absolutely everything that you think would be interesting to you, I think is also really quite useful. And then finally, I do think that it is really important for people to read novels and poetry of the regions that they're studying. That is where actually the sense, the texture, the affect, the intellectual development of those places come from. Yes, and that shows in your writing. Uh, I really appreciate you quoting poets and literary texts uh, through the book, uh, Spinoza of War, and uh, it really helps to bring some of that imagery into our writing to make sense of what we are seeing, but not finding the words to capture that. Um, yes. Absolutely. Actually, I have to say, Abdurrahman Munif's uh, writing, anything that he writes is by heads and shoulders above anything we could expect, you know, in terms of scholarship, in, in conveying a transformation, for example, in Saudi Arabia, that um, is, is just... Uh, I constantly go back to again and again and again and find it to be uh, such a rich and generative text and space for thinking. Yes. Now that we've reached, uh, sadly, the end of our conversation, we would like to ask, uh, who do you hope will read uh, Corporeal Life of Seafaring? And what sorts of impact would you like it to have? So I'm hoping that uh, it's interesting because it's being published by a publisher that usually publishes um, kind of art books. So I'm hoping that it actually reaches um, a kind of an intellectual audience that is interested in the question of seafaring, but that also it reaches people that um, are active around issues that I talk about. So um, uh, particularly questions of seafarer rights. Um, I can imagine, you know, seafarers unions being involved in it. And there is one particular chapter that I'm really hoping that European unions will read about and in order to think about the strategies that we need in order to forge uh, transnational solidarities that cross those kinds of um, walls, boundaries, um, racialized distinctions uh, that capital has reinforced uh, between us um, and which only benefits capital accumulation. If we can, if we can overcome those and if the book makes some of the fabulous activists and across, you know, those kinds of European fortress boundaries, uh, it would, I, I would, you know, if it causes them to think about how to build these solidarities, then my book has done everything that it can, that I would wish for. We wish you the best of luck um, with that endeavor. We've taken up a lot of your time, Lale. Um, we like to ask all our authors at the end of each interview, 
Tell us a little bit, um, if you're able to do so, about what you're working on now. What current and future projects are you excited about or thinking with and through at the moment? So as uh, just before I came online with you guys, um, I uh, was working on an article that I'm hoping to write and I'm pitching it to Ijmis, which is about Arabic language oil journals of the 1960s. Uh, and 70s. Um, and what is really fascinating about these journals is that some of the most amazing figures in um, in uh, Arab letter um, have contributed to them, including Monif, who I just mentioned, but Abdullah al-Turaiqi, Sheikh al-Ahmar, the, the Red Sheikh, um, as well as um, others like uh, Jabra, Ibrahim Jabra and others. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in what these oil journals do. And so uh, I've got uh, thousands of pages of their uh, the, their texts that I'm going through, and I'm trying to sort of pull it together and give an write an article about that. But beyond that, um, I am actually hoping to write two. Well, hoping to write a book that in which synthesizes a lot of already existing scholarship about sort of the history of logistics, but from the global south. Um, and then I'm hoping to be able to secure some research funding to do some big research on the afterlives of nationalization of oil, um, primarily in the Middle East, but, uh, but beyond that, actually in the rest of the world. So thinking about things like the emergence of financial um markets around oil, commodities markets around oil, financial instruments and derivatives, new accounting rules, new engineering, new technologies, etc. Uh, the rise of plastics and petrochemicals in the wake of nationalization. So these are all, you know, a, a lot of oil in there, a lot of shipping and oil in there. But hopefully that's where I'm heading to for the next, um, well, probably for the rest of my career. All of that just sounds amazing. And we are excited to hear about these projects. And we hope to have you back again on the podcast. Thank Inshallah. you. Inshallah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. And thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode in which we explored Professor Lara Khalili's new book, Corporeal Life of Seafaring, published by MacBooks in 2023. And I highly recommend also uh, reading uh, the other book, Senews of Foreign Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published by Versu uh, in 2020. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. I'm Tamara Fernando. Stay and tuned. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned, please, for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.